I'm excited to announce that uh, today we're beginning a, uh, an 11-part series. It was going to be 10 parts, uh, but I realize, yeah, I know, I, it's, the, it's the struggle of a preacher, right? You know, should it be nine, should it be eight, should it be seven, should it be one? Uh, and uh, I just realized that I'd left something very important out of this series, and so I added one, so it's 11. So we're beginning an 11-part series today uh, on the work of Christ, on the work of Christ. And I think if you were to ask the average Christian or maybe even the average person, because many people are familiar with Jesus to some degree, I think if you were to ask them this question, what did Jesus do for us, what do you think their response would be? How do you think they would answer? What would they say? I think in most cases they would say something to the effect of he died on the cross for our sins. Um, that's a, a pretty common response from Christians and from those who aren't Christians. Maybe they don't believe that he died on a cross for our sins, but they're familiar with that statement. They're familiar with that theology, if you will. And, and that is really a true and profound statement. But it's technically, it's only half of the matter. It's really only half of the matter. If Jesus merely needed to die on a cross to save his people, he could have descended from heaven as a man on Good Friday morning, which we just acknowledged. He could have gone straight to Golgotha, uh, the hill of the skull, if you will. He could have died on the cross. Uh, He could have been buried in in a tomb. He could have rose from the grave and then ascended back into heaven. Our sin problem fixed right? In one weekend. Could have totally did that. Came on Friday, left on Sunday evening. Could have done that. And in some ways, when we, when we think of or when we say, what did Jesus do for us? Our answer is he died on the cross. We're, we're kind of stating that in a sense. We're, we're forgetting about everything else that he did. Uh, when we focus only on the cross, we tend to devalue the other important works Christ did prior to the cross. You know, he had basically 30 years or 33 years of life and ministry, and and during that entire period, his life was marked by works, works that have to do with redeeming his people, saving his people, acquiring for them the righteousness that they need, and these sorts of things. And so, as I said, when we focus only on the cross, we miss the rest of his life and all of the other amazing, beautiful, totally and absolutely necessary things that he did. I would say that it's, it's the works of Christ prior to the cross that actually give the cross its significance. I mean, if we just take the cross and isolate it, I think we could probably spend eternity studying what actually happened there, so it's pretty significant on its own. But really, it becomes devoid of much of its significance if we divorce it from Christ's life. It wasn't that just Christ died on the cross for our sins. He also imputed to us his righteousness at the cross, which he acquired through the 33 years of his life. And so the goal of this series will be to examine 11 works of Christ. Basically, things that he did before the cross and obviously the cross and the resurrection and these other things. But we want to focus on 
really 11 works of Christ, very significant, very important works. And the purpose of our study would be to broaden our knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done and accomplished for sinners like us. Um, Hopefully also to build a stronger, more well-rounded, more solid biblical theology so that we can love Christ, so that we can love God essentially deeper, glorify him in, in what we do, and also make disciples who do the same. And so that's kind of where we're headed. Now, I just want to talk briefly about the works that we're going to be covering, okay? Week number one would be today. We're going to look at the incarnation of Christ. And and you're probably saying, what in the heck does that mean? You'll know in 50 minutes. Um, Lord willing, 50 minutes. People are like, yes, it's only going to be that long. Well, we'll see. Uh, Secondly, the temple. And I'm not speaking about the times that Jesus went to the temple and cleared it when, during his ministry. I'm talking about during his childhood when he was 12. That's, there's significance in what he did there. We're going to talk about his baptism. We're going to talk about his temptation, his transfiguration, his triumphal entry, last supper, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and his return, which we call the second coming. So those are the 11 sermons that we're going to look at. Again, this morning we're looking at incarnation, but before moving forward, I'd like to pray. Father in heaven, we call upon you and ask for uh, the Holy Spirit to be sent to us in power uh, that we might comprehend, understand the truth that you are speaking to us today and that we would not only just understand it, that it would become part of who we are and that we would begin to live this truth out. And so if there'd be any in this room who have yet to come to know you in a saving way, we pray for their salvation. For the rest of us, we pray that you would sanctify us, make us more like Christ in this very moment. Teach us about the incarnation of Christ, what it is, what it means, how it impacts us, and how it plays right into our very salvation. We thank you for this time. We pray that we would be focused, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In theology, incarnation is a term uh, used to indicate that the Son of God took on human flesh or human form. So that's basically what incarnation means. Uh, It it means the act of being made flesh. It comes from the Latin version of John chapter 1, verse 14, which in English reads, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word being Christ, the word being the Son of God who existed from all eternity, who has no starting point. This word, Lagos, this Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he became flesh. That is essentially incarnation. That's what that means in John 1. Biblical support for Jesus' incarnation as a human being is extensive and just absolutely overwhelming. The Gospels report Jesus' human needs, including sleep. You can see that in Luke 8.23. And my friend Stephanie pointed out this last week that she would like for me to slow down and to really spend time talking about these references, these Bible references. So I'm going to try to do that. That's a good point. But there's so many of them today, you're going to get blitzkrieged. So um, I'll probably just publish the sermon so you can go get them. But there's a zillion. Anyways... 
Jesus' human needs, including sleep. We see that in Luke 8, 23. He, he had to eat food. Okay, now we're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about God. Now we're talking about him doing human things, which proves the incarnation. He had to eat, Matthew 4, 2, and 20, 21, and verse 18. And he had, you know, physical protection, Matthew uh, 2, 13 through 15, John 10, 39. Other indications of his humanity are that he perspired, he sweated, uh, Luke twenty two forty three through 44, he bled. I mean, these are all things, that's John nineteen thirty four. These are all things that human beings do, thus showing the incarnation. He also expressed emotions, including joy, John 15, 11. He expressed sorrow, Matthew 26, 37. He wept over unbelieving Israel he expressed anger, I would say righteous indignation, Mark 3, 5. Uh, during his life, Jesus referred to himself as a man. In fact, his favorite title for himself was the Son of Man, um, John eight forty. After his resurrection, his humanity was still recognized. So it's like after he rose from the grave, came out of the tomb, it wasn't that he ceased to be a human being. He was still a human being in a glorified body, Acts 2.22. Uh, but the thing that we need to understand, and these are all little support verses for his humanity, aka incarnation, but the thing that we need to recognize or be aware of is that the purpose of the incarnation was not for Jesus to taste food. It was not for Jesus to, to feel sorrow. It wasn't only, and so many say this, I'm so thrilled that God became a man in Jesus Christ because now God can relate to his human beings in a way that he never could before. That's kind of a preposterous statement because God knows all things and he knows exactly what we're capable of, all our weaknesses. But I do like the angle in that God did become a man and he did suffer exactly how we suffer. I mean, God in heaven, he does not experience he knows about them, he's familiar with them, he ordained them, but he does not experience things. I mean, he, he, he'd never been nailed to a cross, never had to feel pain like that or those things. So there is some relating value to it, but it's, it's not just that Jesus, so he, you know, that God could eat food and perspire and, and suffer in these ways or that he'd be able to relate to us. It's not because of those reasons alone for the incarnation. The Son of God came in the flesh in order to be the Savior of his people. That's the primary reason why God came down out of heaven and became a man. It's to become, it was to become the savior of his people. Now, first, it was necessary to be born under the law. Now, that's a requisite. If you're going to have a savior that's going to save humankind, he is one who would have to be born under the law just as all people are born under the law. That's Galatians 4.4. 4. So part of the reason why he came to save, or he came to save, but part of it is the rationale is that he had to be born under the law. And he did that by coming to earth and being born as a man. He had to live under the same commandments and guidelines that we have to live under. He had to acknowledge and believe those things just as we're commanded to do. Uh, and the fact is all of us have failed to fulfill God's law. All of us are commandment breakers. Uh, Christ came in the flesh under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. He came down and obeyed God's commandments perfectly. He had a perfect record. He never sinned against God. He never did anything wrong. He was perfectly obedient. We are incredibly disobedient, and some days we do fairly well, but 
most of the time we're terrible at obeying God's laws. And just think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. Have you ever lied? Yes. You know, just have you ever dishonored your parents? Are you kidding me? Yeah, we're all commandment breakers. We all break the laws. He had to come down and become a man and live under the law, and not only live under the law as we live under it, but he had to fulfill it in a way that we cannot do. Secondly, it was necessary for the Savior to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22, a blood sacrifice requires a body of flesh and blood. And so he had to come live under the law, but he also had to make this propitiation. He had to make this atonement, this sacrifice for us. It required flesh and blood in order to make that happen under Mosaic law. You know, I I was thinking about this the other day. You can't, if Jesus had come down and, because God is spirit, it says in scripture, clearly he's invisible. He doesn't have human form. If God had come in his spiritual form as a spirit, how can you nail a spirit to a cross? You cannot nail a spirit to a cross, not to mention that a spirit, and you can't kill God. God is immutable, unchanging. You can't nail God as a spirit to the cross. You can't kill God in spirit. Um, A spirit could not, does not, would not follow the guidelines of the Mosaic law that required a blood and flesh innocent animal, preferably a lamb. I mean, just think about the implications of this for a moment. He had to come down, take on human form to do the work that Adam, our true father back in the old days, did not do. He failed. He had to become the second Adam in a sense, obey the law perfectly. He had to lay down his own life on a cross and die physically as a physical man in our place, taking all our sin upon his, his own body, exchanging his our sin for his righteousness, it's called the great exchange. It's the greatest trade that's ever had. Wall Street's never been able to come up with anything so fantastic. The fact that he would take my sin upon his perfect body, his sinless body, his holy body, my filth, my garbage, my lust, my lies, my deceit, you know, my lack of patience, all that I am as a sinner, to take that upon his own body, his own perfect, holy, righteous body to take all the filth, and not just mine, but in a sense the filth of the world, more particularly the filth of his people, which is a massive body of people. Revelation 7, 9, they're innumerable. There's so many people that belong to God. Some of them don't even know it right now. To take all of their sin and to say, I'm taking your sin and I'm going to die on the cross and make a final atonement for it. And by the way, here's my righteousness. Because you see, if Christ had just died on the cross for our sins and we accept that reality and truth, we would be cleansed of our sin before God. But the reality is is that that's not enough. We become a blank canvas before God. We have to have righteousness to enter heaven. And we don't have righteousness in and of ourselves because it says in Isaiah that all of our righteous deeds apart from faith in Christ are but filthy rags. They're trash. And so we need a foreign alien righteousness. And that is exactly what Christ did. He comes as God in the form of man, earns our righteousness through perfect obedience, dies on the cross for our sins, takes our sins, dies for them, makes a final and lasting atonement as the Lamb of God. Boom! He exchanges his 
perfect righteousness for our sin, we become washed white as snow, purified clean, made ready to be in relationship with God. This is what he did. Hallelujah. It's amazing. And, and, and this was God's plan for incarnation. This isn't something that God had to figure out after man fell. It's not something that he had to conjure up in response to man. God doesn't respond to us. We respond to God. God knows all things and is all-powerful in all of these things. Uh, it says in Hebrews 10, 5, so this was God's plan for the incarnation, that Christ would come and do exactly what he did. Hebrews 10, 5 is an amazing verse. I've read it before, but it clicked this week for me. It says this, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is Christ speaking. You prepared a body for me in eternity past. It was your plan to prepare a body for me that I could step out of heaven and become a man and make this atonement and do this work for, for my people, for your people. God literally in eternity past planned to give Christ a body to make him a man through the spirit. And, and what do we celebrate during Christmas? God becoming a man. We celebrate the virgin birth and these things. God gave his son a body so that he could, a literal flesh and blood body, so that he could become the flesh and blood sacrifice for us. Now, a question arises I thought was interesting because I think there's great confusion about this. Did God die on the cross? Just think about that for a moment. Did God die on the cross? Yes and no. Yes and no. God the man died on the cross. God the man, God in human form, the human aspect, the human part of who, that, of who Christ is, the being, the incarnate. The incarnate or human nature of Jesus Christ died on the cross, but the divine nature of Jesus Christ did not die on the cross. As I said earlier, God cannot be killed. He's immutable, which means unchanging. He cannot be extinguished. I don't care what the time wrote 20 or 30 years ago. God is dead. What a farce. God cannot be killed. Now, we can, in a sense, as sinners, kill God off from our ideas and our thinking and all that, but he's still there. I was recently debating a, a person who claims to have been a Christian for about 50 years and now claims to be an atheist, and, and I said to him, I said, sir... And he, of course, now, and you know, I've got compassion for the guy. He's really confused. But he seems to think that, you know, when he was a Christian or whatever, and I told him he was never one, but he kept saying, I was a Christian, I did this, I did this, I did this. He seems to think that Christianity is something that you can flip on and off, like with religion. And I just told him, I said, it's, 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 that's not something that you can do. You can't just turn it on and off. It either is or it either isn't. It's one or the other. It's not something that you can just, you know, you can't just believe in God at one time and then not believe him, and then he goes away and he's non-existent. That was my point to him. I don't care what you do in your mind or psyche or in your community to kill God off. He's still there, and he's still loving, and he's still merciful, and he's still gracious, and he's still just. He will not be mocked, and he will come in full-blown justice and wrath. All the more reason for us to submit to him. But, you know, you can kill him off all you want. He's still there. The, the truth still stands. The truth is not 
it's, it's not something that we can truly manipulate or jettison or get rid of. It still stands for all ages. It's, men are like grass, but the word of God is eternal. It's everlasting. And so I was trying to argue this with him and just say, look, you know, you might be turning it off in your mind, but it's still there. Well, I don't believe in the Bible anymore. Well, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that the Bible is gone because you don't care to believe in it anymore or, or whatever. It doesn't mean that it's any less valid or any less authoritative or any less perfect or any of those things. And we need to, we need to get this into our heads. Did God die on a cross? Yes and no. The man, God, the incarnate part died, but not the divine. You know, there were two really, really bad poisonous theologies that arose early in the church uh, that basically claimed that the divine nature of Jesus Christ died on the cross. They were uh, Theopassianism and Patripassianism theologies that the early church said, oh, wow, they're, they're teaching that God, the divine, literally died on the cross. We, we need to put an end to that, bring a council together, you know, condemn it via the scripture, show that the scripture is true, that you know, God himself did not die in spiritual form at the cross, and then paint it as heresy and dismiss it. And, but there's people today that will argue that, that claim to be Christians. Well, you know, it, that undermines that God had to die. Well, just try to help me understand how God himself can die how we can kill the spirit of God. You just can't do it. So, Now, we've already learned that, that the scripture or from scripture that the incarnation of Christ was totally necessary for our salvation. I mean, literally, God had to step out of heaven and come and become a man to take our place, to obey the law as a man, to die in our place as a man and as the last sacrifice. We've established that to a degree. I hope you believe it. Um, God had to come to earth. He had to become a man. He had to fulfill all righteousness through perfect obedience to God's law, and he had to die on a cross in our place. What else can we learn about the incarnation from Scripture? So we know it's necessary. Here are some additional truths. Um, the incarnation was foreplanned. It was put together before the creation of the world. Uh, in discussions of the work of Christ, many people believe that the natural place to begin is with, you know, Jesus' birth. However, the work of Christ began long before his birth, long before. In fact, it began in eternity past in what theologians call the covenant of redemption. You might want to write that phrase down. Maybe none of you, you haven't heard of that, the covenant of redemption. Uh, we encounter the word covenant frequently in the Bible, uh, Covenant is a pact or agreement between two parties, kind of like a contract, if you will. We're all familiar with contracts. If you've ever bought a car uh, new off the showroom floor, you made a mistake doing that contract. Hallelujah, amen, the sermon is over. Pain for that one still. Uh, done that before, trying to learn. Uh, so it's kind of like a contract. And you have the, in the scripture, you have the covenant of creation, you have the covenant of works, which is like one of the early covenants where God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of life, and that was a covenant. Yeah, that, that's your work. Don't, you do everything. Enjoy your life, but don't do that one thing. That's the covenant of works. And then you have the covenant of grace. As we read through the scriptures, we see God making covenants with people like Noah, um, Abraham, and I would say King David or David, later uh, making the new covenant. However, many people are not familiar with the very first covenant 
the covenant of redemption, what we're talking about. That was not a covenant God made with human beings. All of the other covenants that God has made throughout the Old Testament and all the way up to the the New Covenant, which we see in the New Testament, they were all between people or groups of people. Uh, And the covenant of redemption did not, it was about human beings, but it wasn't a promise or it wasn't a contract drawn up between people and God. Rather, the covenant of redemption was a pact forged in eternity among the three persons of the Godhead, okay? Uh, We distinguish the persons of the Godhead as what? As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we examine the Old Testament record of creation, we see that the entire Trinity, the whole Godhead, was actively involved in bringing the universe into existence or into being. But not only creation was a Trinitarian work, so is redemption. In eternity before creation, the Father initiated the concept of redeeming the creation He knew would fall. And to me, that's one of the most mind-blowing realities. It's like, okay, God, you created all this with a full knowledge and understanding of how it would go awry and yet you proceeded with it and did it anyways. In fact, I'd take it even further. He ordained for it to fall, all that he might be glorified by his grace and mercy through redemption. But it's just, I mean, these are, okay, let's just put it this way. We need to tread lightly here. We're talking about things that happened before creation. We're talking about an eternal counsel between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, this is just like mysterious stuff. But literally... In eternity before creation, the Father initiated the concept of redeeming the creation. He knew would fall. He designed the plan of redemption. He designed it. The Son was given the assignment to accomplish that redemption through incarnation and through His works and the things that we're going to be studying, etc. The Holy Spirit was tasked with applying Christ's work of redemption to God's chosen people. So you basically have an eternity past Before the creation of the universe, you have the Father who basically is the architect and designs the plan. And then you have Jesus who, in a sense, buys the plan, purchases the plan, purchases the contract, the covenant of redemption with his own blood. He goes ahead and plans to do that. I'm going to do that. I'll lay down my life and my blood. So so the Father wrought the plan. The Son bought the plan. And then you have the Holy Spirit who uh, brought the plan. The Holy Spirit is the one, the active agent, the third person of the Trinity who comes and applies this redemption and this covenant of redemption, this plan, this thing that was foreordained. He applies it to the elect, their lives. He applies it to God's chosen people. Pretty amazing thing that they discussed and, and settled in eternity past. And how long ago is that? It's eternity past. I don't even know. Was that like 500 years before he created the world? Was that like a thousand years? Was that, when was that? Uh, it's mysterious. Evidence for the covenant of redemption, okay, this pre-plan that God had with this counsel, if you will, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's evidence for it, and and, which actually ultimately led to incarnation, because that's when really the plan becomes activated, if you will. Uh, So we'll say evidence for the covenant of redemption, which led to incarnation, is seen in passages like 1 Peter 1.20 and Ephesians 1.4, which say... God chose him, that's speaking of Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began. So you mean to tell me that you knew all this would fall? You knew I'd be jacked up, but you chose Jesus to be my ransom before any of this stuff took place? You're darn skippy. That's amazing. 
And he goes on to say, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. It's like, okay, so Christ came. By Christ coming, God revealed that, hey, this is your Savior that I set up for you in eternity past. Ephesians 1, 4, even before he made the world, it says, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. There's another example of the covenant of redemption, and that, which led to the incarnation. Secondly, the incarnation. So, right, firstly, it was, it was foreplanned. It was planned in eternity past. And then secondly, it was uh, foretold. It was prophesied. I like that word. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, what is the translation of Emmanuel? It means God with us. And so this prophecy was given about 800 years before Jesus was born, seven, 800 years before Jesus was born. Here's a glimpse of the incarnation in the writings of Isaiah, the Shakespeare of the Bible. Pretty amazing. There's another example in Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, speaking of the God incarnate, to us a son, the son of God, is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and all of these are capitalized. And this is why I don't understand why the Jews miss their Savior, their Messiah here. These are all capitalized. Wonderful Counselor, capitalized, reference to the Son of God. Mighty God, it says. So just plainly, the incarnation, it's, it's, it's God coming in human flesh. It says, Mighty God. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now that doesn't sound like a human being alone, because the Jews think their Messiah is just a man like King David was. Okay, how can the Messiah, how can be the, this, this person who's going to come and, and redeem the Jews and, and save many people in the world, how can he be a wonderful counselor, capitalized, mighty God, everlasting Father, and how can he be the Prince of Peace? It's insane. But ultimately what we have in Isaiah 9-6 is another example of how the incarnation was prophetically given 800 years before Christ came. Okay, so it was planned way back in eternity past. I'm going to give you, okay, Jesus, you're agreeing to do that. I'm going to give you a body. You're going to come. You're going to be born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon her. All this stuff was worked out. And then it was foretold. It's not like, okay, that's the plan. I'm not going to warn them that it's coming. And then he foretells it almost a thousand years before Jesus even comes. And I would say that the foretelling happened even before that in Genesis 3 where it says, that of your offspring, through your seed, Eve, one will come and he will crush the serpent's head, which is Satan. Well, who is that that's going to come through her seed that's going to crush the serpent's head? Only one. Couldn't be a man alone. It had to be the God-man incarnate. So there's glimpses of this incarnation throughout all Scripture, especially in Isaiah. So that's number two, right? It was, four, it was four planned, number one. Number two, it was foretold. I'd say maybe even uh, number zero, it's necessary, Totally necessary that God comes and become a man for us to be redeemed. So number, we'll say number four then. The incarnation was a, and this is huge, the incarnation was a form of humiliation. It was a type of humiliation. Humiliation. We read this grand text earlier, Philippians 2, and I'll read again 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, speaking of the incarnate one, Jesus, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, in this amazing, mind-blowing text, Paul identifies five humiliating things that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, underwent to save us. To save us. Five humiliating things. First, he did not count himself equal with God. He did not count himself equal with God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God. But but during his incarnation, his time on earth as a man, he did not consider himself equal with God. As I said earlier, he often identified himself as the Son of Man or as a man. Others called him God when they realized who he was, but he silenced them. He told them, hey, keep that on the DL, man. Don't talk about that. Now, why did Jesus abstain from referring to himself as God during 99.9% of his, I would say, even life, more particularly his ministry? First, I think that he was seeking as a human being in the flesh and in the weakness of flesh, even though he was a perfect human being, he still had the limitations and things. I think he was seeking to preserve himself so that he could complete his ministry. Uh, Maybe what we would say is that he didn't want the deity, his deity, to be getting out too soon because that would generate certain persecution, maybe up the ante on his adversaries, and he had a ton of adversaries. If you think about it, at the very end of his ministry, he did finally declare that he is the I am, that he is God, and what happened? He was immediately killed. So I think part of it has to do with preserving his ministry, getting from point A to point B. I don't know. I could be off, but I think that partly that has something to do with it. Secondly, it could have to do with Philippians 2.6. There could be a tie between Jesus not talking about his deity and Philippians 2.6. And I would say this, that Jesus was so incredibly humble, unlike any who has ever come before him or after him, he was so incredibly humble that he didn't consider himself equal with God, nor did he desire to boast about his true identity. Could be that. Could be that he wanted to preserve his ministry and not let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. It could be that he was so incredibly humble that he didn't want to go around boasting about that. Could be. I mean, those are two possible reasons. And, and you just think about this for a moment. Okay, he didn't go around talking about it. He did the very end, and then he died very quickly afterwards. Just think about it for a moment, and I would say, imagine yourself as God. That's the stupidest thing I've said in months. And just think about it. You're God. You have infinite, unwavering power and knowledge and all these spectacular things. You're God. You're glorified. You're, you're all of this stuff. Would it be humiliating to have to hide your true identity? Would it be humiliating to consider yourself not equal with God when you are yourself God? Of course it would be. Of course it would be. The second humiliating thing, he emptied himself. 
He emptied himself. And I think that this is just, it's on the precipice of unbelievable. It's so hard for me to grasp because I just can't imagine. How should we interpret this statement? Well, some say that emptied himself means that Jesus underwent a metamorphosis into a man. I'm like thinking caterpillar? That's kind of awkward. A metamorphosis into a man so that the divine nature essentially passed out of existence or took on another form. Uh, they go to Mark 12:32, which is a verse I was discussing with one of my very close friends this week. Mark 12:32, where Jesus said that he did not know the day or hour when he would return to establish his kingdom, the day of salvation, the day of the Lord, if you will. They say, look at this verse. It's so obvious. Jesus did not know the day or time that he would come back, and he said that only the Father knew that, thus proving that he's not God because God has all knowledge. So this is the argument that they use. They say, well, I don't think he was divine. I think when he emptied himself, he emptied himself of his divine nature because he, there's, a, uh, there's a classic example of him. He doesn't know. He doesn't know when he's going to be sent back. He doesn't know when he's coming back. It has to be true, right? Well, we already talked about how that line of thinking was denounced in the early church as for heresy. So this is the wrong way to interpret emptied himself. We should not look at it like he's no longer God. And I don't know why people go to that, but they do. Maybe it's because Satan's behind a lot of what we do. That is the wrong way to interpret empty himself. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. He did not cease to be God. It's heretical to say that, and it's an impossibility. He's immutable just as the Father is immutable. What did empty himself, what, what then does it mean? What, if he didn't empty himself of his deity, what did he empty himself of? I'll tell you what he emptied himself of. How about his position in heaven? How about his throne? How about his glory? Wouldn't we all just admit that being a man or a woman is not all that glorious? Sometimes you get a fresh haircut, you put on some good cologne, you feel kind of glorious, but in two hours you need to re-cologne, re-deodorant. You don't feel all that glorious. The whole culture is telling us that we're glorious and we're Maybelline worth it, but we're not. You just think about that for a moment. His position in heaven. His seat at the right hand of the Father. It's an eternal seat. Established forever and ever and ever from before all the way to the... There's no end, there's no beginning. You're you're talking about a position that is higher than anything in the known universe. You give the position up. You give up the throne. You give up the glory. He emptied himself of his glory. And you know what? He even emptied himself of some of his divine abilities. He did. Now that's a supernatural event. I don't know how it works. But he must have in a sense or that they were stifled by the... I don't know. I don't know how it works but just think about it for a moment. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. We see an example of how Jesus did not know something. So somehow there was a restriction on his ability to know all things, somehow. Omnipresence, that means to be everywhere at once or to be able to travel here and there. I don't know about you, but as a man, Jesus could be in one place at a time. 
in the Gospels. He had to walk here, he had to walk there. That guy put in, if that guy had a Fitbit, he'd have blown us all out of the water. The guy walked all over Palestine, all over Israel. He walked everywhere. He put in some mileage. He'd be on our list and he'd be at the top all the time and I'd be like, man, he always beats me. So I'd probably just lay in bed going like this to try to catch him because that's just faking steps. I probably just got about eight. That's good. I mean, God has all knowledge, but Jesus seems to show that he did not have all knowledge. God is all present. He's omnipresent, but Jesus could only be in one place at a time. And, and this one's going to strike you, and you might say, ooh, you're, you're hugging the edge, Phil. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Did Jesus have all power? Um, what did Jesus do when, I hate that cliche, but what did he do when he multiplied the loaves and fishes? He raised his hands to heaven and prayed for a miracle. You see, what Jesus did as a man on earth is he depended on the Father for power. And he acquired it through prayer. So if he emptied himself, he emptied himself of his throne, his glory, I would say he emptied himself of some of his divine ability. Somehow, something was there to, to, to limit those things. I just think about it. Here's one who casts the universe into existence, who has to pray to the Father to get something done. Here's one who had this throne. Here's one who had this glory. Here's one who had all of these things. Emptying himself would be humiliating. To be restricted, in a sense, and confined to a mortal body with mortal body limitations, and your God, humiliating. Thirdly, he became a servant. Let me describe God to you for a moment, according to Scripture. God is surrounded by seraphim, angels, who cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6.3, that is what God is experiencing right now. Heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool, Acts 7.49. In God's presence, his presence is so incredible and so majestic that in his presence, so holy and righteous, in his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away, the earth trembles and its people are destroyed. That's Nahum 1.5. How about this one? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50 verse 10. The cattle on a thousand hills is a metaphor for everything. It's all his. How about this one? God made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. That's the highest position. That's a sovereign position. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Acts 17, verse 24 through 25. Now, what what do each of these passages do? They illustrate the absolute sheer awesomeness of God, and yet it is this God who became a servant to sinners like you and I. How humiliating. Are you hearing me? 
Uh, we're talking about the incarnation. How about he was born as a man? That's another one that's laid, listed there. By becoming a man, God literally took upon himself human limitations, weakness, hunger, fatigue, fear, etc., etc., etc. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why would God weep? Well, in human form, he wept because he experienced the same things that we experience. Think about this. As a baby, Christ had to be cared for, had to be fed, had to be nursed, had to have diapers changed. We're talking about God. As a child, Christ had to be educated. He had to go to school. He had to learn God's law the same way we do. He had to learn multiplication the way that we do. He had to learn long division, and that was a curse. He had to be educated. He had to be, he had to be raised and, and nursed in all of these things. As a teenager and as a young man, he had to learn to work. He worked in his father's carpentry shop. Jesus dealt with the things that we deal with on a human level. Even temptation. So, God subjected himself to the flesh and to human weakness and to human frailty and all that I've described for our benefit. How humiliating. Lastly, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. This is the ultimate example and expression of humiliation. It's the ultimate. It's the top. You can't get higher than this one. I mean, having to be a baby and be changed and go through all that and learn school and do all those things and grow up as an adolescent, have, probably have to deal with acne, although he might not have had to. I don't know. I'm sure he did. All of these things would have been tough. Life is tough, is it not? But this is the ultimate example of humiliation here. It's the creme de la creme. In crucifixion, the criminal was stripped naked. And then nailed to the beams like an animal for all to see. Completely exposed. People mocked him. People cursed him, people spat at him. And crucifixion is a slow and agonizing death, usually by asphyxiation. You'd be hanging there for days on end and your legs get tired and you can't hold yourself up any longer and when they start to give way, your rib cage starts to fold in on your lungs, suffocating you. And over time, you would just, you couldn't breathe. Christ allowed himself, God allowed himself to be treated this way despite the fact that Christ was innocent, despite the fact that he was holy, despite the fact that he was righteous, despite the fact that he was perfect, despite the fact that he was divine. He humbled himself unto death even death, the worst possible form of capital punishment in that day. Death on a cross. 
How humiliating. But humiliation is not the only thing Christ experienced. It's not the only thing. Number four, lastly, incarnation led to exaltation. And that's in the passage we read earlier too, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, okay, he just got done explaining the incarnation and what Christ went through for us. And then he says, therefore, because of what he did, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Incarnation led to exaltation. As a reward for his obedience, God highly exalted Jesus Christ. Highly exalted him. He gave him the name above every name. What is the name that God has given Jesus? The name that is above every name. It often happens that Christians who read this passage assume that the name that is above every name is Jesus. When you first read this, that's what you think. But Paul had something different in mind. The name that is above every name is the title that belongs to God. Adonai. Lord, which refers to God as the sovereign one over all. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience in the role of servant and savior, God moved heaven and earth to exalt his son, and he gave him the name that is above every name, Lord. Jesus became the Lord Jesus, the sovereign one over all creation. And one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, Adonai, to the glory of God the Father. And this includes unbelievers, even those who remain in their sin and reject Jesus Christ, will, they will be made to bow and acknowledge His Lordship just as a conquered people do before their conqueror. That, my friends, is exaltation. It was planned. It was prophesied. It came to being. He came, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. And he lived this perfect life of obedience and earned for us this righteousness. He, he, he emptied himself and did all of these things, died on a cross to remove our sin, to give us righteousness. And because he did all of this, God has highly exalted him, that he is the Lord Jesus. That, my friends, is exaltation. I hope you've enjoyed this very, very brief look at the incarnation of Christ. What sort of personal application can we take away from it? Yes, it's doctrine. Yes, it's, it's good. And, and, I, and I'm sure that people in here have been impacted and that they, they want to know more about Christ. And this is a great way, but there's got to be something personal to it that we can 
that has handles that we can walk out with. What kind of personal thing can we take away from this? Well, prior to Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Paul was exhorting the people at Philippi, the church there, to humble themselves and to think of others as being higher than themselves. See, that's the actual context for this passage that we just looked at. In verse 5, Paul began to point to Christ. In verses 6 through 8, he described Jesus as he described the humility of Christ via the incarnation. I want you to be, he says this to the Philippians, I want you to be humble, that's how you should be. And now I'm going to show you how your Savior, the one you believe in, how he was humble and how he came as God and became a man and emptied himself and did all these things. I want you to follow that example. And then in verses 9 through 10, he did what? He described his exaltation. Paul's primary point here in this text was not to provide insights or a good, robust theology or doctrine into the incarnation of Christ. It wasn't just to establish doctrine. It's good. He did that. But that's not the primary point. It was to show the humility of Christ and to exhort all believers everywhere to follow his example. That's his point. How can we do this? We can do this by not considering ourselves better than or equal to others. We can do this by emptying ourselves of our pride and our selfishness. We can empty ourselves of our self-centeredness. We can do this by what? Following Christ's example, becoming a servant to others. And we can do this by humbling ourselves even to the point of death, the death of self. If we follow Christ's example in these things, if we follow Christ's example in these things, we too will be exalted by our Heavenly Father. We're not going to become the Lord. There's one Lord but he will reward us, guaranteed.